We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29 today, <clears throat> closing out our Advent series, um, celebrating Youth Pastor Preaches Sunday. Um, every year, That's this is an official holiday where um, Pastor preaches Christmas morning, and then the following week, the youth pastor gets to preach. That's not what this is for us here, but it just happened to fall on that. So uh, we are closing out our Advent series today. I recognize Christmas was last week, um, and so typically Advent leads up to that that time, um, but the way our Advent um, series count, calendar worked out today is the end um, of, of it. So uh, we get to close that out in Colossians chapter 1 today. Um, as we end 2023 today. Um, so um, in, in these verses, Paul, um, Paul concludes his introduction to the church in Colossae. Um, he, he has, he has um, written this letter to, to them, and we're going to see a major, major hitting point of his letter is this mystery. And that's what we're going to spend the primary... Um, amount of, of, of time today looking at is this mystery, what is it, and what does it mean to you, and what does it mean to, to me? Um, but um, as, as we look into this, I want to keep in mind um, two, two profound messages Paul is getting across as he writes this. First, that he, and in turn we, um, has great joy in suffering. He has joy in suffering. We know um, from his letters, we know from history, church history, that his suffering was great. Um, we're not going to go into what exactly was, was going on with, with him through the course of his ministry, but we know that his suffering was great, and it was on a regular basis during his ministry. Yet he says here, and he says often, to have joy in suffering. So we're going to look, look at that. Secondly, Paul lays out the source and the cause of that joy, that it's not just merely a self-mustered-up joy that we work hard to have, but it's a joy that comes from something beyond you and beyond me. So let's read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So let's just work through this passage here, verse by verse together, and determine what's being said here. First of all, we're going to look at the role. Um, there is, is a... Is a saying here that is a hard saying to stop and to read that if we skim over it, if we just quickly scan over it um, and take this one verse out of context or out of um, um, the full meaning Paul's getting across here can create some really horrible theology. So let's, so let's stop and take a look at it here. It's in verse 24. 
Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. To be clear here, the gospel of Jesus Christ was not and is not lacking in any way concerning sufficiency, concerning perfection, concerning value, concerning glory, concerning beauty, concerning capability. That's not what is being referred to here. The afflictions of Jesus Christ, the words that are said here by Paul, are lacking in two things, though. And I believe that Paul makes that point pretty clear here. And also in his letter to the Ephesians, which we're going to spend some time in today as, as well, um, and in other places as well as the letter that he wrote to um, the church in Philippi. Um, so first, it is lacking in the fact the afflictions are lacking in the fact that Jesus can no longer personally bring the gospel to those who need to hear it. Okay, As Paul's talking here, Jesus has already been born, what we celebrate at Christmas. He's already been born. He's already lived his life. He's already gone to the cross and died on the cross. He's already gone to the grave and rose on the, th on the third day. He's already ascended. And now, at this point, as now, at our point here, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. They're making intercession for his bride. So we, as the body of Christ, are filling that void. We're filling that gap by sovereign design and mandate, not by accident, to be clear, but by sovereign design and mandate. We, you and me, are the ones who are charged with making disciples of all nations, not to quote a verse or anything of that sort, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. That's given to you and me. We have been charged when Jesus had compassion for the crowds who had come to see him teach and, and to heal. We were charged with the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, just as a complete side, side note here, because I'm pretty good at those, um, on, the, on this verse, I... I, I do not believe that this is a pray for more missionaries verse as it traditionally has been used as of recent. Um, that this is a prayer of a shepherd for his flock. Taken in context, that is a prayer of a shepherd for his flock. That is the prayer we pray for you, Calvary, that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. We pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We recognize there are few laborers. So we pray for your hearts to be convicted of sin, that you would turn in faith to Christ, and that you would see your great need for a Savior. And that when you have turned to faith in him, you go and you labor in his harvest. You go and you labor in his harvest on the ranch, at the grocery store, at the VA, Selling and building buildings, as you work on construction sites, as you renovate homes, as you work your job in security, to your children, to your wife, to your husband, to anyone, anywhere you go. 
Secondly, I think what Paul is saying here in Colossians 1, verse 24, as he's referring to the lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, understand Paul to be making the case here that the sufferings of Christ are also lacking in the future sufferings of the saints to come. That means you and me. It means Paul as he's talking. It means a church in Colossae as he's talking to, to them. The sufferings of Christ are lacking in the sense that there is more suffering to be done by the body of Christ. That's the church. That's you and me. There is suffering to come. There's been suffering in the past. The church has suffered greatly. The church suffers greatly right now. Just this last week, there were hundreds killed in churches and in villages in northern Africa in one day. Okay? Because they, they were Christians. The church suffers greatly right now. For the sake of his body, that is, the church. But look, the start of our passage in verse 24, Paul says that he rejoices in this. Paul lived this life. Paul knew it. He knew it personally because he was going through it as he wrote this stuff. And he says that he rejoices in his sufferings. The sufferings are not just for one to bear, to suffer through or to struggle through or to just suck it up, buttercup, right? That's, that, that's not what it's for. Paul makes it clear here that we don't just suffer through things without hope. We're going to come back and we're going to consider that more in just a minute. But Paul does make it clear um, what this source of joy is. It's not just mustered up. It's not joy that we just work hard to have or just act happy or just be happy. So the mystery, what is it? That's the main, the, the main point of what we are looking at here. Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 through 27. Read with me here. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul, once again, reveals the great mystery that has been veiled up until this point, that has been hidden. It's always been there. It's not something new. It's always been there, but it's been veiled. It's been hidden behind a veil. This is not a mystery in the sense that it's left for you and me to kind of wonder at what it is or to decipher something that nobody knows. It's not that kind of a mystery. Um, it's, not a, <laughs> it's not a mystery like an escape room. Okay, I'm not going to name any names, but a group of eight of us went to an escape room once a couple years back. Um, and I'm not naming any names because I'm pretty sure we set a record and it's not on the time scale that you wanted to be on. Um, but the ladies were all very orderly, um, as usual, um, trying to follow the clues in order, uh, which we actually later found out was the best way to do it. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, us guys were really busy um, realizing that there's a second room to go into and is hidden behind a cabinet that Drew pulled off the wall. Um, <laughs> I said a name. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Did a guy pull off the wall? Um, we have not been back. 
It's not this kind of a mystery, okay? When we look at the mystery Paul's talking about here, it's not that kind of a mystery where you're left to fumble your way through aimlessly. And we were picturesque of that. We were, we were fumbling our way through aimlessly. And there's all kinds of cameras in there. And it was embarrassing because the poor girls in the front were probably feeling bad for us. Um, this is a mystery in the sense that it is something that was not clearly and fully revealed until this point, until the point Christ came to earth. It is a mystery in the sense that it was hidden throughout history up until Christ's birth. Now, there's been clues. There were a lot of clues. As we read through the Old Testament and we read through the New, Te New Testament both, we see clue after clue after clue that was left. There was a lot of buildup to this point, even from the beginning. So we can turn to Genesis chapter 3, quick. Turn to Genesis chapter 3, way at the front of your Bible. Genesis 3.15, this is what we call the Proto-Evangelium. It's the uh, first gospel, okay? Um, the, fir the first time we see Christ promised. So, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offsprings and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel turn to the right some genesis 22 we're going to buzz through through this quick for the sake of time genesis 22 verse 18 this is god speaking to abraham making a promise to Ab abraham this is way before christ and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This is a huge clue. Shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Turn some more to, to the right. Turn to Ezekiel 36. <clears throat> Ezekiel 36 verse 26. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Again, go to the right some more. To Isaiah chapter 53. Wrong way, sorry. That was left. You're going you're, you're gonna to go left again next time. So if I say right, don't go right. Go, go left, okay? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Left. A couple chapters to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, verse 6 says, 
He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So so the buildup up to this point in history has been immense. That is barely a sprinkling of what all has been said concerning Jesus, concerning this blessing to the earth, concerning this promised Messiah that's only a sprinkling of the verses that talk about him coming, about this Messiah coming. Throughout the history of the earth, it has been throughout. Sprinkles of this mystery and hints of what was to come. So then Paul, back in Colossians 1, Then Paul says that he was given stewardship of this mystery. He's been given stewardship of, of, of all, all this. <clears throat> um, according to Oxford Dictionary, um, steward means to manage or look after another's property. He's been given, he's been given the, the responsibility to look after this and to, and to tell others about it. He has been given this. Paul is saying here in verse 25 that when he was converted on the Damascus road by Christ appearing to him and was called by Christ as an apostle to the Gentiles, he was made a steward of God's plan, including, um, including the all-encompassing purposes and plans of God and salvation and his mission in the world. So, let's... Turn from Colossians back to Ephesians. Because here, in Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 10, Paul, Paul, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, explains his stewardship of this mystery further, only he flushes it out some more. Says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So, what is this mystery? Paul talks, he's talking about it left, left and right here. What is this mystery Paul keeps referring to? Colossians 25, Colossians 1.25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul reveals what this mystery is finally, and the mystery is mind-blowing. Put yourself in the shoes of the Jews that are listening to this. Put yourself in the shoes of the Gentiles, your own, your own self, who are listening to, to this as it's being written. When you get the letter from Paul and you're reading this, it is mind-blowing. Paul's preaching here that the Jewish Messiah has come into the world as a man and extended himself to the pagan nations, including you, America. In doing so, he has drawn us into covenant with himself and dwells in us and offers us the hope 
of the glory of the Jews and makes us heirs with his son. Mind-blowing. Think about this. This is an unthinkable, unthinkable set of circumstances Paul lines out here for the original readers. The uncircumcised Gentiles, the pagans, would be intentionally, purposefully planned out from the beginning of time, drawn into the promises of God through the promised Jewish Messiah. This is the mystery that God in Christ has come to earth and chose to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This hope of glory is now offered to us along with God's chosen people of Israel. Here's, here's a quote from Pastor Piper. But now the mystery is being revealed and Paul is proclaiming Christ and teaching everywhere that the indwelling of the Messiah and the hope of the glory of God belong to all who trust Christ and really hope in the glory of God. Let me read, read that again. But now the mystery is being revealed and Paul is proclaiming Christ and teaching everywhere that the indwelling of the Messiah and the hope of the glory of God belong to all who trust Christ and really hope in the glory of God. So before we turn back to Ephesians 3 again, just as a, a, a side note, scholars much wiser than I um, often often refer to in, um, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. Um, Paul write, writes about um, um, th those that he's write, writing to in his letter to, Colo to Colossae. Um, he s tells them to read another letter. He refers to one that he, he sent uh, from Laodicea. Um, so that is often thought to be the letter to the church in Ephesus. Okay? Um, we, we don't know for, for sure, but it is often thought um, that, that that is probably what it is. Reason being is that um, it's, it seems that the um, letter to the church in Ephesus and the letter to the church in Colossae um, were written by the same person around the same time with the same thing in mind. Surprise, right? Um, but um, that is why we can go to Ephesians chapter 3 and it feels like we're reading almost the same thing we're reading here in, Col in Colossians 1. It's pretty near the same thing. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll be in verses 4 and 6. 4 through 6, sorry. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. <clears throat> when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, take, take note here, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same, or of the promise in Christ Jesus through the same gospel. So Paul is saying here, this mystery is that Christ has come to indwell Gentiles as well as Jews. The Jewish Messiah has come to indwell the Gentiles. And, I, and I'm going to keep harping on that because it's important that we understand that because it means a lot to you. It means your eternal destiny to you. In such, Christ is guaranteeing the grafting in of the Gentiles into the promises of God. You 
Paul's saying here, Gentile believers at Colossae, you Gentile believers at Calvary and Hot Springs are members of the same body, are fellow heirs with Israel, and are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You've been grafted into the promises and are united with the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. Because of, because of Christ's accomplishments on the cross, you, brothers and sisters in Christ, can enjoy the benefits of the promise that God made so many years ago to Abraham in Genesis 22, that the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, would come to bless the whole world. We are part of those that are blessed. This is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is not a future tense blessing, though um, as as Paul talks here in, in Colossians 1, this is not some future tense blessing that we get to real, realize in the end of time or at death. Even though there is, there is blessing to be real, realized upon our death, there is blessing to be real, realized upon the end of time. Um, we, we have major blessings real, realized then, right? But there are blessings to be realized here and we don't, we don't have the time to go into go into all the, all the blessings that we have at the point of salvation, but there are many, and they are real. When you're made a child of someone, their inheritance is not the only benefit or blessing you get. Amos, Zane, and Shiloh, their inheritance, however small it may be, is not the only benefit they get from being mine and Liz's children. There are many benefits realized right now day-to-day that come from the position of being our children. Now, there's a lot of, plenty of drawbacks that come with with that, and that's where the analogy would break down, right? But because there are no drawbacks to being called a child of the living God, it's only benefits, it's only blessings. So what does this mean to you and to me? What does Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29 mean to you and what does it mean to me first of all the obvious and glaring application we have been harping on for the last 25 minutes 25 30 minutes or so um, is the fact that this passage is immensely important for you and for me as far as I'm con- I know at, at least um, there are there are no Jews in this room um, as, as far as I'm aware. So we would all be counted as Gentiles. This passage, along with many others as we read throughout God's word, lines out our eternal hope. It lines out the fact that we, because of Christ's accomplishments on the cross, have been, as Gentiles, invited into relationship with our Creator, with the God of Israel, with our Messiah, with the blessing promised all the way back in Genesis. Friends, there are some, perhaps more than just some in here, who have not turned to Christ in faith, who have not become counted as son of God, who, who are not heirs with Christ in God. To you, um, I say the same thing Jesus said as he began his ministry here on earth in Galilee, and that is this. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is my call to, to you. That's Paul's call to you. And even more importantly, that is your Messiah's call to you. 
Second of all, addressing you, Calvary, for those of us who have been saved by grace through faith, suffer with joy. That's a hard, a hard ask. Suffer with joy. Paul says in this passage that he rejoices in his sufferings. I said I was going to come, come back to this. Here, here we are. Um, he says that he rejoices in his sufferings because those he is speaking to see him suffering. They, they see him suffering as he delivers the gospel message to them and they see him living out the things he's saying. So he's saying the, these things, he's saying these truths, he's delivering the word of God to those that he's ministering to and he's suffering in front of them. He has a life that they can sit and they can watch and say, wow, he's suffering and he's joyful. Why is he joyful? Because of the things that he's saying are true. Suffer with joy. Paul's clear. The Christian life is strewn with pain, but it's marked with joy. Many of us right here in this room have lost someone you love dearly. Lost a husband or a wife. You lost a child. You're unable to have children. Have been diagnosed with an illness that changed the whole course of, of your life. You have mental health struggles. Find yourselves in long, unexpected hospital stays. And the list can go on and on and on. But Paul makes it strikingly clear. Christian walk is a painful one. It's not easy. But it's a joyful one. It's one, it's one marked by joy. How is this possible? There have been Christians through, throughout time who have experienced great pain and loss and they turn to God in praise and in joy and their lives are marked with joy as we read the autobiographies and, and such of them. Many of the hymns that we often sit here and sing in this very church were written by these people. Look at William Cooper. He wrote, there's a fountain filled with blood. His mother died when he, when he was a young child, and his dad sent him off to boarding school for the rest of his, of his childhood. Um, throughout his young adult life, he struggled greatly with, with um, anxiety and depression, a lot of mental health issues. He had attempted suicide multiple times, and then he was saved, and he wrote the lyrics to, there is a fountain filled with blood. Go like this. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds su supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. How about Horatio Spafford? He wrote, it is well with, with my soul. Many of us know his life story. He was a successful lawyer in Chicago. Then the great fire of, of Chicago came, destroyed most of his monetary worth, and was just gone. Two years after that, um, they decide to go on a vacation in England with D.L. Moody. Um, and so he sends his wife and his four daughters across the sea to England ahead of him. He had to deal with some business matters in town. And a catastrophic shipwreck happens. Two ships collide, one of them being the one that his wife and his four kids are on. And his four daughters, all aged under 12, all four drowned and were killed. And he gets a telegraph from his wife letting him know that she's the only one left alive and he travels he gets on a ship and he travels to go meet his wife in England and as, as, as he's passing the spot where his four daughters every one of his kids had been killed um, he, he writes this 
when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea bellows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. We could go on and on. We could go on and on with names like Fanny Crosby, right? We could, uh, George Matheson, on and on of just hymn writers, much less non-hymn writers, right? Who were stricken with grief and with sorrow and with pain, but exemplified joy in their lives. Let me tell you, being a picturesque American with all the money and the toys and everything else that we chase after will not give you joy. It will give you momentary happiness, but it will not give you lasting joy. Due to my job, I've been at and investigated more suicides than I would like to stop and count. And I can tell you, hopelessness, hopelessness and misery are equally present in all classes of people. Those with, with less monetary means are hopeless and miserable due to feeling they'll never reach the top or they'll ne ne never reach a place of comfort or they'll never escape the, the pain. Those with larger monetary means are hopeless and miserable because they have reached the top or they have reached a place of comfort and found it's just as hopeless and miserable as the rest of their life and still full of pain and are left seeking continually for what will ease those feelings. So what is the answer? It's not anything on this earth, apparently. I can tell you that anecdotally, and I can tell you that factually based on what, God, what God's word says. What gives you, brothers and sisters, what gives you a joy that will never fade or lose its luster is to follow in Paul's footsteps, knowing that you have the hope of glory, Christ in you, Christ dwelling in you and fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction and ministering to people. Specifically, as Paul says here in Colossians chapter 1, specifically ministering to the people right here in this room, to the church. Fill up what is lacking. Ending with a quote again. God is calling us in this text to live for the sake of the gospel. And to do that through suffering. Christ chose suffering. It didn't just happen to him. He chose it as the way to create and perfect the church. Now he calls us to choose suffering. That is, he calls us to take up our cross and follow him on the Calvary road. And deny ourselves and make sacrifices for the sake of presenting his suffering to the world and ministering to the church. That is your calling, Calvary. Let's close in prayer. Our glorious God, <clears throat> you're good when you give, and you're good when you take away. When the sun shines upon us, and when the night gathers over us, you have loved us before the foundation of the world, and in love you redeem our souls. You do love us still, in spite of our hard hearts, our ingratitude, and distrust. Your goodness has been with us during yet another year, leading us through a twisting wilderness, in retreat helping us to advance, when beaten back, making sure headway. 
Your goodness will be with us in the year ahead. So we hoist sail and drop anchor with you as the blessed pilot of our future as of our past. We bless you that you have veiled our eyes to the waters ahead. If you have appointed storms of tribulation, you will be with us in them. If we have to pass through tempests of persecution and temptation, we will not drown. If we are to die, we shall see your face the sooner. If a painful end is to be our lot, grant us grace that our faith fail not. If we are to be cast aside from the service we love, we can make no stipulation. Only glorify yourself in us, whether in comfort or in trial, as chosen vessels used always for your use. Amen.